Welcome to Bad Table Talk. I'm your host, Oliver Niehaus, and this is where we break down all of the current news and talk about everything you aren't supposed to talk about at the dinner table, that being politics, religion, money, and more. My goal with this series is to provide easy-to-listen, informative segments addressing the most pressing issues we face and to pretend like I know what I'm talking about. As always, thanks go out to my friend Oscar Gregg for providing the music you hear, and you should all check out his single, Acrobats, which will be linked in the podcast notes below. If you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. And feel free to also share your thoughts with me via email, which is linked below as well. So sit back and relax while I talk about how utterly fucked we are as a country. I'm totally kidding. Sort of. All joking aside, regardless of where you stand politically, I hope everyone is motivated by what they hear to research more about these issues and feels ready to contribute to making our nation a better place for everyone. Thank you and please enjoy. So, thank you for listening to the first episode of Bad Table Talk. Uh, the first episode, we'll be discussing a lot of different stuff, uh, mainly the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all of the implications that that has involving that situation. So, I don't have to be the first one to tell you that we currently are living through dynamic times. Uh, we are currently living through a global pandemic that has taken the lives of over 200,000 Americans. That is still ongoing, despite what people may <laughs> try to say. Um, there's a huge fight for racial justice within our country. Um, Black Lives Matter movement is, that some would consider a peak, the largest movement in modern-day history. Um, over 26 million Americans participated in Black Lives Matter protests um, across the nation. So that is unprecedented. This kind of goes along in the same vein as... The coronavirus pandemic, it is a direct result of it. We've seen the largest GDP shrink on record in our history. If you've taken a look at my other podcast, which I would um, recommend, it is called Actually Making America Great. It goes over five different policies that would actually make our country great. And one of the policies that we discuss um, we or we look at is the uh, uh, New Deal and the Great Depression and a lot of those implications. And during the Great Depression, our GDP shrank by 27%. Within the second quarter of 2020, our GDP shrank by 33%. It is, it is unprecedented. This is this is unprecedented. We have never seen something like this. So, and on top of that, we just lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg just over, or if not six weeks before the election. It's it's an absolute tragedy. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a phenomenal Supreme Court justice, um, phenomenal person. Uh, she worked her entire career to eliminate gender-based stereotyping in, within legislation. Um, she was appointed Associate Justice of the Supreme Court by Bill Clinton in 1993, and she's the second woman to sit on the bench. So, besides Sandra Day O'Connor, she is some of the only women, only one of two women who've sat on the court. So what implications does this hold? Well, we'll, 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 we'll go right for this right away. Huge one is Roe versus Wade. A woman's right to an abortion and the right to her own bodily autonomy is indeed under attack. So, if you are a woman in this country, uh, the right to maintain your own bodily autonomy and whether or not you have a literal human growing inside of you, which is the most personal decisions, is under attack. So along that same vein, there are many other decisions that have the potential to be reversed. Uh, over the past 10 years, there have been many decisions that have fallen um, across five four lines, meaning that five justices voted in favor, um, four against, and it was a split decision. Uh, and we're going to talk about four of them in particular that have occurred. So the first case, which was absolutely uh, groundbreaking, was Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015, which legalized same-sex marriage na nationwide, gave gay people the right to marry, equal protection under the law. So that was a 5-4 decision. Ginsburg was crucial in that. She, she helped legalize same-sex marriage nationwide. So that was a huge decision. And if we see a 6-3 conservative majority, that could possibly get overturned. 
in 2020 or in 2021 and beyond, we could see the reversal of equal rights to LGBTQ citizens, which is, which is terrible to think about, absolutely terrible to think about. In that, in that same vein, there was another case that was crucial, and it was the United States versus Windsor, which declared that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional. Basically, there was the case, in a summary, was there was a lesbian couple who um, wanted to get divorced and therefore reap the benefits or the tax benefits of marital status before getting divorced. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't, or not the Supreme Court, I apologize, um, but the, the lower court said, no, you can't because we never really recognized your marriage as an official marriage because you are indeed lesbian and that um, is not uh, uh, protected under the Defense of Marriage Act. Therefore, uh, this went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court along a 5-4 line in which Ginsburg voted um, in favor, in vote, uh, Ginsburg helped vote to say that the Defense of Marriage Act was indeed unconstitutional. So that was a huge decision. That that and Obergefell versus Hodges really put um, gay people, gay and lesbian, LGBTQ citizens on the same legal playing field as every other person. Very, very crucial. And these are things that we could possibly see get overturned. So those are two big cases. One of the other cases is the Department of Commerce versus the state of New York. This was one about the citizenship question. If you're unaware, President Trump and uh, the Department of Commerce, uh, Wilbur Ross, the director, secretary, was trying to put a question about citizenship asking on the census whether or not those filling out the census were citizens. Now, you may ask, why would you want to put that on the census? Well, if you're, if you're not aware, um, the census is what determines representation in the House of Representatives. Uh, the more people that are in a district, because the House of Representatives is based on proportional representation, meaning that higher the population is, the more, the more uh, representatives are given. And therefore, th this would disincentivize those who were not citizens, undocumented people, from filling out the census. And people who are undocumented, when they gain citizenship, or if they gain citizenship, are more likely to vote blue. Gee, I wonder why. It's it's not like, you know, it's not like the right is constantly spewing anti, you know, anti-immigrant xenophobic rhetoric or anything like that. No, definitely not. Obviously, that's the reason. The, the Republican Party is so anti-immigrant. So it makes absolute sense. So to compensate for that, they are trying to disincentivize people who are who are undocumented from filling out the census and thus trying to suppress their representation in the House of Representatives. That was the point. And the Supreme Court, along 5-4 lines, said, nope, you can't put that question on the census. So that was struck down, fortunately. So that's something that could be easily reversed, and we could start seeing um, undocumented immigrants who could possibly gain citizenship in the future be targeted and their, you know, wills and representatives not be heard. So... In that same vein, there's the last case that fell along 5-4 lines. That's the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, versus Regents of the University of California. This was the case that upheld DACA. Uh, if you're not aware, DACA is, uh, stands for the Deferred Action of Childhood Arrivals. Basically, it was a policy implemented by President Obama that declared that people who were brought here by their parents under the age of 16 from another country, so they weren't born here, so they're not technically U.S. citizens, they were brought here by their parents and the la uh, language of the policy was under no fault of their own were they brought here. Um, the issue with this is we had people who came to this country very young, went through schooling, went through all of schooling, got to college even, and were contributing functional members of society, but were inhibited due to the fact that they were not citizens and did not receive the same protection. So these people who had contributed very positively to our country were not, were not, were not, were not able to apply for college. So this gave um, children who were brought here under no fault of their own an easier pathway towards citizenship. 
And the Trump administration has been trying for years to try to reverse that. And in this case, a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court upheld that, um, upheld DACA as you know, being constitutional. So those are four cases that could easily be overturned, right for same-sex couples to marry. Uh, the, the Defense of Marriage Act was declared unconstitutional, which could easily be reversed, as well as a citizenship question could be instituted on the census when the census comes up next, and therefore it could target undocumented immigrants, and they could not be represented if they were to become citizens the same way as everyone else. And then there's the DHS versus Regents of University of California. We could see um, children who are brought here very young. America is their home. They don't. They they don't. They, they most likely don't know their old home. They were brought here very young. We could see them not having a pathway towards citizenship and possibly even deportation. So that's how severe um, this these cases are. And if there was a six-three majority on the Supreme Court, that could be reversed. So getting back to the implications of the Supreme Court um, nomination potentially that is trying to be pushed through. The reason this is such an interesting process not only is it forty-five days until election day, meaning this is incredibly rushed. And um, sudden, if we go back to precedent that has been previously set, during Obama's term in 2016, his last year of presidency, he appointed Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court um, after the unfortunate passing of Antonin Scalia. And this was in March of 2016, and uh, Scalia died in like February, so this was March of that year. It was 293 days before election, and uh, Merrick Garland was delayed by Mitch McConnell, um, and Mitch McConnell issued a statement that said they would not consider any nominee put forth by Obama and that a Supreme Court nomination should be left to the next president of the United States. Obviously, that is not being upheld now. Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and Republicans, um, with notable exceptions, Lisa Murkowski, um, senator um, from Alaska, and Susan Collins from Maine uh, are notable and have both pledged their support, or at least not support, but have said that they do not want to vote on a Supreme Court nomination until after the election. We will see how that goes. Mitch McConnell has his way of twisting the arm of Republicans and to get them to fall in line. So we'll see if those are just empty words like we saw with McConnell and Graham. But um, speaking of Lindsey Graham, actually, he kind of was the one who was uh, very, very vocal about the Garland confirmation process, or at least um, lack thereof. And he had some interesting words. So I think I'll play a little clip or a couple clips of you of words that uh, Graham said back in um, around 2016 during this entire process. This is the last year uh, of a lame duck president and if Ted Cruz or Donald Trump get to be president, they've all asked us not to confirm or take up a selection by President uh, Obama. So if a vacancy occurs in their last year of their first term, guess what? You will use their words against them. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me, and you'd be absolutely right. I'm a conservative, want conservative judges on the court. This may make you feel better, but I really don't care. If an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait till the next election. I want you to use my words against me. You're on the record. Yeah. All right. Hold the tape. 
So I don't share that with you because it's anything meaningful. Obviously, Lindsey Graham is not going to stick to his word. He's already come out vehemently denying that this has any relevance, saying that this is a completely different situation in which the, 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 the stakes are so different, except he kind of exactly described the situation we're in um, four years ago. But clearly, uh, he's not going to stick to his word, so I'm not really going to go too much into it. Not many politicians do, if we're going to be honest. Many, many, many politicians, um, their words are empty. On both sides of the aisle, this is not exclusive to Democrats or Republicans. Establishment politicians um, very often do not keep their word. So take with that what you will. I think it's probably good to move on. We've discussed a little bit of the previous processes involving this and why this is such a big um, skirmish, as well as some previous court cases. But I think it's important to also get into um, who could possibly get appointed by Donald Trump. If uh, Trump is able to squeeze through a nominee in these 45 days, we're praying that doesn't happen, but it's still a possibility if Senate Republicans want to get it done, there's a chance that they're able to find a way to do it, um, as well as if Trump wins re-election, which oh, we, we really we really hope not. But if that's the case, let's look at who he could possibly nominate. So let's take a look at his short list. So these are just three people. There are m many, uh, a lot more people, but these are the uh, m most notable. If we look at um, one of them, it's the first guy is Ted Cruz, a Republican senator from Texas. If you don't know who Ted Cruz is, he's very conservative. Not someone, not someone, I mean, who we'd want on the court if, you know, you're in favor of, you know, democracy, decency, or like, you know, the continued survival of like the human race. But beside that, uh, if it comes down to different cases, we were talking specifically about abortion and gay marriage is um, many cases that could get overturned. So if we're talking about abortion, um, Cruz is strongly anti-abortion and would allow the procedure only when a pregnancy endangers the mother's life. Uh, notable Note to make here, uh, I don't want to get into a huge abortion discussion, but pregnancy in itself and childbirth specifically is always threatening to the mother's life. It is a life-threatening process. So if he wants to hold that precedent, I don't think he wants to go off that precedent. But technically, if we want to be you know, consistent, uh, pregnancy and uh, childbirth threaten the mother's life. So technically, she should be able to, if she wants to, um, get an abortion. But yeah, uh, he is also in favor of cutting federal funding to Planned Parenthood. So um, let's talk about that, why that makes absolutely no sense, no matter what side of the aisle you are or how you stand on the position of abortion. If you're not aware, there is something in place called the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment was passed, and it basically prohibits any federal funding from going towards abortion, meaning none of your tax dollars go towards the abortion procedure. All of the funding, 100% of the funding that Planned Parenthood gets goes towards pap smears for women, cervical cancer exams, free and low-cost contraceptives, um, pregnancy counseling, all of these different things, pregnancy referrals. So when you defund Planned Parenthood, it's, it, it helps no one. All you're doing is stripping reproductive care from millions of women across the nation, especially low-income women who would most likely need that. If you're against abortion, it actually makes sense. As long as the Hyde Amendment is in place, by the way, I want to make it very clear, I don't support the Hyde Amendment. I do not believe that you should be exempt from paying something for something with your taxpayer dollars because you don't agree with it. Many people like to make the argument, I don't want to pay for something that, you know, kills innocent babies. Okay, fine. Awesome. So wait, our taxpayer dollars don't have to go towards something that kills innocent people? So can I stop paying for the military? Because the military has literally killed hundreds of thousands, at least, of innocent civilians in the Middle East during the war on terrorism. If you want to, you should definitely go um, reference my other podcast series and the war on terrorism. But if that's the case, I am so glad that 17 cents of every dollar of my taxpayer money does not have to go to that. So be consistent then. If you believe that no one should have to pay for abortion because you don't believe people should have to pay for things they don't disagree in particular, 
the killing of an innocent human being, if that's how you choose to view the situation, then I guess I don't have to pay for the military. And so you have to be consistent there. But regardless, I do not support the Hyde Amendment. I think that it does not make sense and actually leads to more abortions. I don't want to get into huge discussions surrounding abortion. We kind of already have. But that is why, no matter where you stand on abortion, with the Hyde Amendment in place in particular, defunding Planned Parenthood is quite possibly one of the worst ideas. And I'm convinced that after you have all of this information and you still support defunding Planned Parenthood, you must have some personal vendetta against women because it's only helpful to primarily low-income women who would otherwise possibly get abortions. Like, the Hyde Amendment makes it so that women have to pay 400 500 600 any amount of money that an abortion may cost out of pocket. So it doesn't go to abortion. So I'm sorry if you still support that. You're, you've been lied to, and you, you don't actually understand how this works. So I hope that clears it up, but that is why it does not make uh, sense to support uh, defunding Planned Parenthood, even even if you staunchly oppose abortion. All right, so let's move on to some of some of Cruz's other positions. Uh, one of Cruz's positions is, obviously, he opposes same-sex marriage and civil unions, both, both for gay people. He believes that marriage should be legally defined as only between one man and one woman, and but he believes that it should be left to the states same-sex marriage. So if he's on the court, you could see a 5-4 reversal as which there could be certain states in which gay people would not be able to marry, in which gay people would not have equal protection under the law. That is how groundbreaking this case is. So he also referred to Obergefell v. Hodges, the decision legalizing same-sex marriage. This is absolutely disgusting, by the way. I hope everyone knows that this is this is grotesque. He said that, that, that the, the decision legalizing same-sex marriage was among the darkest hours of our nation. Think about that. A Supreme Court, someone who is potentially could be on the Supreme Court, and by the way, Ted Cruz is 49 years old, 50 years old. He could be on the court for as long as 35, 40 years. Someone like that could be on the Supreme Court if Donald Trump is able to squeeze someone in through these next, you know, 45 days, or if he wins re-election. If we, he wins re-election, we're, we're, we are screwed. We are absolutely screwed. So I, I, hope you, I hope you know that, and I hope you realize the implications that this has. So moving on, they seem to all be in this vein, by the way, these, at least these three, but I'm sure, I can assure you the uh, exhaustive list of about 20 is fairly similar. So I guess so much for Donald Trump saying that he'll do everything in his power to protect the LGBTQ citizens when these list of his nominees all oppose same-sex marriage. So moving on, the next person is uh, Tom Cotton, who is a senator from Arkansas, a Republican senator from Arkansas. It's very interesting, very telling if we look at this list that all of these people are just senators. I know there's some other people on the list, but it's interesting that he's just nominating random senators who don't have, you know, aren't well qualified, like Merrick Garland, who was incredibly qualified. Like he was independently reviewed by many uh, judicial groups and organizations as a very qualified justice um, in his own respect. So all these people are just senators. So if we go on to abortion in particular, uh, Cotton has stated, uh, Tom Cotton stated that Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the subsequent case, were wrongly decided as a constitutional matter. So he's against that. He is against Roe versus Wade. So another vote that would overturn it. Um, in 2012, Cotton said that strong families also depend on strong marriages. I'm sorry, what a homophobic piece of shit. He's basically saying there, not basically, he's clearly staying there, saying there that gay marriages cannot be strong. Like, screw you, man. Like, absolutely. And he says he supports the traditional understanding of marriage as union of one man and one woman. And he also supports the Defense of Marriage Act. There goes the United States versus Windsor, as well as probably Overgevel versus Hodges and Roe versus Wade of BC. So there's that. 
This is another person. And by the way, Cotton is younger than Cruz. Cotton is 43. Cotton could be on the court for 40 years, 45 years. This is how much these implications have. These are, these are decisions that can have implications decades upon decades upon decades down the road. So this is not just one election. This is determining our history for the next five decades, six decades, beyond that, the future of our country. So there's that. You want to talk about Young, though? Let's talk about Josh Hawley, another person on Donald Trump's shortlist, who is a, again, Republican senator from Missouri. And in December of 2015, Hawley supported exemptions for Missouri's businesses and religious groups from participating in same-sex uh, marriage ceremonies. I'm okay with religious groups having the right to um, discriminate against uh, people who are LGBTQ when it comes to marriages. I don't, I don't support forcing churches to marry gay couples. I don't agree with it, but religious freedom is important, and I think that is something that's all right. When it comes to businesses, though, absolutely not. If you're a business that operates in a non-religious institution, no, you, you cannot discriminate based on unchangeable factors. That is, that is completely, completely unconstitutional, um, violates anti-discrimination laws, and no. So that is, that is, that is not okay. Uh, if we go to June 2020, so this year when, it's, when the Supreme Court ruled that federal law prohibits workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, Hawley himself harshly criticized the decision, saying it represents the end of the conservative legal movement. Yeah, that's kind of the whole point, buddy. If the conservative legal movement is based on discrimination, based on sexual orientation or gender identity, then absolutely it should be the end of that movement. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, you're, you're correct. That, that, that needs to end. So there's that. Moving on to Roe versus Wade, Hawley opposes abortion and has called for the appointment of constitutionalist pro-life judges. Well, that's interesting because it seems like the Constitution, it was interpreted and it was ruled in the Constitution that a woman has a right to an abortion. You can disagree with that, but he's like constitutionalist pro-life judges. At least right now, it seems a little contradictory considering that it was, um, it was protected as a constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion. So he says that he would only... Um, support constitutionalist pro-life judges to the U.S. Supreme Court and other federal courts. He called Roe versus Wade one of the most unjust decisions in American judicial history. Uh, Missouri's Right to Life uh, Political Action Committee endorsed Hawley for Senate. And this is, this is, this is huge. Again, obviously, if it wasn't clear, uh, in July of 2020, Hawley said he would not support any Supreme Court nominee who did not explicitly say that they would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. So there's that. He would clearly overturn um, not only Roe versus Wade, but it looks like he would also possibly vote to overturn many other protections for LGBTQ citizens. So these are some of the people that are possibly be able would possibly be able to be on the court for the next uh, 50 years in the case of Josh Hawley, who is 40 years old. He's the youngest senator in, in the United States Senate. So these have incredible implications that need to be considered very, very carefully. So if by through going through all of this, you clearly still do not understand how many implications this has, well, I'll try to explain it to you a little further. The issue with this entire thing is that Democrats are not willing to play the game of politics. If we look at it from a simple lens, Democrats are constantly staying within what it would be considered the realm of decent and politically correct behavior. While the Republicans are out, you know, doing random shit, just lying, lying their asses off. And while the Democrats just keep saying, you don't do that, but we're going to stay morally pure because that's the correct thing to do. Unfortunately, that's not exactly how this works. And this is just going to lead to their own demise. It really, it's, it's very unfortunate that we live in a system in which one team is trying to play by the rules while 
the other doesn't. So, I mean, as I said before, Democrats just keep operating within that realm of acceptable, decent behavior. Meanwhile, like, <laughs> the country burns because we've ceded everything to Republicans. Well, I don't know about you, but my principles are winning, personally. That's what I care about. And democracy and all the systems within democracy and all the procedures we have for maintaining checks and balances are broken right now. They've gone to shit and they're ruined and pretending they aren't and pretending that we still live in a functional democracy and only operating within the bounds of that civil and decent behavior when we know damn well our opponents won't isn't principled behavior. It's unless your principles are losing. You know, so this is a good example to imagine exactly what's going on right now and to consider this is imagine you're running a race. You you, you are going to this race um, and you're going to operate 100 percent within the rules. You are going to the race. You think it's going to be a fair race. You're there. You've come you and your two feet and the cap gun goes off. And as soon as everyone starts running immediately. Someone throws a banana at your feet. Oh my gosh, you, you dodge out of the way only to find out that someone, someone has thrown some other contraption like a nail or something in front of you that you also have to dodge. You quickly find out that everyone there has brought booby traps and contraptions and things to inhibit your ability to race. What is the principled behavior for you? Oh, well, uh, sorry, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. There's a really other important part about this is that whoever wins, wins the race gets to like basically genocide half the population, except you who wouldn't genocide half the population. So if anyone but you wins, um, the entire country is basically fucked. So what's the principled behavior? Is, is the principled behavior to still adhere to the rules? Meanwhile, someone else wins and gets to po uh, potentially genocide half the population? Or do you participate in the game for the greater good and outcome? It's not principled behavior to lose. There's no superiority complex. Abstaining from that type of behavior does not garner a better result. It only leads to the general population losing. So that is indeed the current fucked up state of our country. I really hope that we are not able, or the Republicans are not able, to sneak through a Supreme Court nominee before Trump loses. Uh, it's clearly indicative that no one is confident that Trump will win re-election due to the fact that they are trying to rush this. So. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, rest in peace to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, other than that, hope we don't lose reproductive rights. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, I'm personally, uh, I don't have a uterus, so I'm just born different, I guess. So it doesn't really pertain to me. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I should not be joking about this. This is this is awful. This is this is really awful. So thank you so much for listening. Um, and I hope you all are doing well. Thank you. So you've been listening to Bad Table Talk with Oliver Niehaus. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. I would very much appreciate that, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Not too much else. Please stay tuned. There should be more of these coming on topics as they come up. I'll be looking to definitely recap and cover the presidential debates as they come up between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. That will be very fun. So other than that, take care, everyone. Thank you.